go ahead and turn to Esther chapter 8. We're going to be doing Esther chapter 8 today. Go to Genesis and make a right. Go up a few books. You'll find it if, you're, uh, if you have a device and you're new. We're doing the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version. Esther chapter 8. So we, we've been obviously in, in the book of Esther. It's uh, named after a Jewish woman who was exiled in Persia. And she becomes queen to the most powerful ruler in the world. Now, if you've grown up with the Sunday school version of Esther, we've pretty much just destroyed your world. Uh, and by now you've seen that her story is not a fairy tale and that Esther is not a hero by any stretch. She's actually a lot like us. She's living in a culture that is very challenging to her, just like we live in a culture that is very challenging to us um, as people that are committed to holding faith in God. So for Esther and for her cousin Mordecai, the other main player in the story, for them to fit into their surrounding as immigrants, which is what they are, a high degree of compromise um, would need to characterize their lives. Uh, and it does. They compromise quite a bit, as we've seen through the book, until one day this high-ranking government official, a dude named Haman, he convinces the king, King Ahasuerus, to sign off on mass genocide for the entire Jewish people. And so what happens is, is that Esther uses her influence as queen, <clears throat> excuse me, to put an end to Haman's reign of terror. But the law that the king signed, it couldn't be revoked. So today we're going to see how God maintains his control, how God maintains his sovereign presence over the lives of his people while calling them at the same time, very mysteriously, to be responsible for the ways he's provided for them um, in their deliverance from genocide. Now, this is something that is strange for us because on one hand, like I said earlier, we see that God, there's nothing that happens uh, be, there's nothing that happens outside of God's control, outside of his will, outside of what we would call his sovereignty, which means he's over and above and he's in control of all things. At the same time, God gives us abilities and God also holds us responsible for our sin. He holds us responsible for the things that he's given us that he uses through us to accomplish those things that he's sovereign over. Now, again, man, if your head is starting to spin and do a bunch of circles, like, yeah, so was mine. And I, had a, I was in this thing all week, right? So, again, that is something that in terms of our humanity, we can't fully reconcile. We just believe it because we know that it's true about who we know God to be. So we're going we're gonna to kind of... We're going to kind of see the contrast. We're going to kind of unpack these two things. I was, uh, I was at my, uh, my mom's last year, and her husband had bought one of these like electric bicycles. And it was like this really crazy nice one. I looked at the thing, I'm starting to slobber. I love stuff like, I love bikes. And I got on that thing, I'm like, well, how does this thing, I mean, how, is it, how does this thing work? And she lives in this really hilly area where there's all kinds of hills, like stuff I would never attempt to ride my bike up, right? Because that would be painful, right? I'm not like you marathon runners. Um, and so I hop on the bike and I'm like, I don't know how this thing works, but I'm pedaling. And I'm like, dude, I, I just don't get it. It doesn't feel like any different than any other bike I've ever ridden. It's like, man, the whole thing's a sham. You know, they just have this engine on it, but it's not plugged in. Like, I don't know. But as soon as I started going up this hill, like it kicks in. 
And before I know it, like I'm not tired at all going up the hill because this electric engine kicks in with my pedaling and the whole thing is just like literally carrying me up the hill. Now, as I'm pedaling, here's my main point. There's something more powerful than my pedaling that is getting me to my destination. But somehow it's working hand in hand. It's not really my legs that are getting me there. Ultimately, it's that engine, but the engine isn't even gonna work unless I use my legs. Now, that analogy, like all analogies, is gonna break down when it comes to God because he's not an electric bike, right? He's not an engine. Right? But I think you guys get my point, and this gets us into some of these mysterious contrasts that we're going to bring out today as we dive into what's happening now that Haman has been hanged, and we're going to see a plan go out in place to help protect and defend the Jews. So let's start in with chapter 8, and I'm just going to step through us slowly as we unpack this. Esther 8, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose, stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Verse 7, the king of Hazareth said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. So the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, 
and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Verse 15, then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. That's God's word for us today. So we see in verses one and two here that Mordecai rises to power. This is one of those satisfying moments in a story when the bad guy gets his, when the bad guy gets his due. And the good-ish guy, Mordecai, gains what the bad guy lost. Haman's estate is given to Esther. Haman's signet ring is given to Mordecai. And Esther gets control over Haman's estate and then sets Mordecai over it. So what we see here is this reversal of fortune. We see this transfer of power taking place where God is moving his people into places of influence to use their power for the good of the people and the purpose of his will. Now, this should cause us to look closely at our own lives, of course, and notice the places that God has put us in and to evaluate whether we're using our own power and our own, our own influence. Remember last week we talked about all of us have a particular kind and amount of power and influence. But we need to evaluate whether we're using our power and influence, however great or small, to expand God's kingdom, to seek the justice of God, right? To show the mercy of Christ, to create culture and to work for change. We must live with an ever-increasing consciousness that, and everything we do, right? All of our breathing, living, working, loving, and moving, man, it is happening under the gracious hand of God's sovereign control. We have to remember that. Mordecai rises to power because, remember, just like Joseph in the book of Genesis, God gave him the power to carry out his plans. Paul reminds us of this in Romans 13, 1, when he says, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God ultimately has all sovereignty, control, and power, and he gives that to some people to use for their good and his glory. So don't think for a minute that it's any different for you, even if you're not a high-ranking official. Most of you could probably say, that you didn't anticipate the place that you find yourself in today. And well, yeah, you, you couldn't because there's no such thing as crystal balls and fortune cookies that actually work, right? God has placed you where you are with the power you have to accomplish his plan. Well, what plan is that? Well, we know before anything else that it's to proclaim the gospel that it's to practice justice and mercy and be conduits of love and compassion to your neighbors. We know that much. We always know that much. God has given you a sphere of influence and a percentage of power to be proclaimers and to be practitioners. And so this is what we see happen to Mordecai as he rises to power. And then when we get into verses three through nine, we see here that the king working again in this sort of invisible 
uh, providential sovereignty of God, he grants Esther's request. Esther receives the golden scepter again, right? I mean, how nervous was she? Man, I got to go through this again. Is he going to receive me? Is this the end of it all? Man, I got to keep going through all this nerve-wrackingness. The king, Esther receives the golden scepter again, asks the king if he would send another letter to revoke the letter that Haman devised to destroy the Jewish people. Now, the king's in a bit of a bind, right? Because laws cannot be revoked once they're signed off on by him. But here's what's interesting. For the first time in the book of Esther, we see almost a different side to King Ahasuerus come into view. Because although his law cannot be revoked, he reminds Esther and Mordecai that one, he removed Haman from the picture. By the way, remember, I hanged that guy. And then number two, that he'll sign off on another edict in the Jews' favor. So what's interesting is that we see a level of understanding and, and maybe even compassion from the king. And what we know about God and what we see very clearly in scripture is that God does that, doesn't he? He gives his people favor and he does it through unlikely means. Sometimes he hardens hearts like he did with Pharaoh who refused to listen to Moses and let the Jewish people leave Egypt after 400 years of slavery. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't allow Pharaoh to say, let him go. And he did that to accomplish his plan. At other times, he softens the hearts of pagan kings to accomplish his will. So whether he softens or hardens, this is what we know. We know that everything plays into God's hands. Everything carries out his purposes. And this is just another example of God's sovereignty and control over all things. By the way, whether we can see them or not. And this should help us. This should help you as you wait on God to answer prayers in your own lives that you maybe feel like you've been praying for, but you haven't seen any fruit from. Sometimes we think that other people hold our fate in their hands. But what we see here is that whatever decision people make is because God is allowing it to be made. Let that help you. Because God's calling us to pray to him in dependence while we wait to see how he unfolds the drama. Let that encourage you about God, not just your circumstance. Now look, this is, this is how God decided to move in this particular drama. Had he not granted Esther's request, he would have provided another way because God's ways are not our ways. And yet we see Esther and Mordecai not falling into paralysis over what might be, do we? But doing everything they can to save the Jews from destruction. Now listen, waiting on God is not passivity. Don't ever interpret waiting on God as being passivity. It's employing wisdom. That's what waiting on God is. It's those moments in our lives when we wait and God fills us with a wisdom that was lacking before. It's taking responsibility for what we can do while trusting God to act in ways we can't see. You guys have all seen that in your own life. You guys could all come up and give us examples in hindsight of those things bearing out in your own lives. So then we get to verse 10 and we see that after the edict goes out, the Jews then rejoice 
with gladness. They celebrate Mordecai for the place that God has brought him to. They receive a new edict, which states they're allowed to defend themselves. And not only defend themselves, right? Not only just lock the door, but to put on an aggressive counterattack, an aggressive counterattack to destroy, to kill, to annihilate anyone that comes against them. And, and basically what this means is they have the freedom to do whatever it takes to enact vengeance on uh, their enemies. Now, I want to unpack this just for one minute, because on one hand, if we dive a little bit deeper into this, this feels strange to us, right? Because this feels like something that we're not being told to do today, uh, in essence, right? And sometimes this can sound a, a little strange. I mean, does God condone this kind of, of vengeance? I mean, this doesn't sound like the New Testament God that calls us to love our enemies, does it? Um, well, here's how we can unpack this. Here's how we can understand this. Before the, before the cross, and again, Esther is before the cross of Christ, where Jesus took the vengeance of God against sin upon himself, God called his people to destroy those nations who were actively in rebellion against him because they threatened his purposes that he was putting forth to redeem the world to the people of Israel. It was a different time. Now today, that doesn't apply. That doesn't apply because we are now on the heels of what Christ did on the cross. So we don't condone holy wars any longer, right? That's not the, that's not the place, that's not the position we have because Christ took all of that wrath that God has against sin and evil and he took it upon his shoulders. This is how one commentator said it. Listen really closely. It's a little long, but I want you to hear this. It says, the death of Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, provides the only cessation, the only end of holy war. And the infilling of the Holy Spirit provides the only power by which one may love one's enemies as oneself. All of the vengeance of God's people all of the vengeance God's people would like to wreak on those who practice evil has now been satisfied in the suffering and death of Jesus. He has taken the wages of sin. He has suffered the vengeance of evil. So the vengeance due to us for our sins against others and due to them for their sins against us has been satisfied in Jesus' body on the cross. It is only on the basis of recognizing that the penalty has been paid by Jesus that we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. So, she sums it up like this. True holy war in human history has ceased because Jesus has fought its last episode on the cross. So this is part of the struggle we have with understanding, well, hold on, the God of the New Testament and then now we have the God of the Old Testament. There's no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. There is the God over all, for all time, who doesn't change. But there are different times and different contexts for which God acts in human history. So when we talk about salvation, what are we talking about when we say salvation? And that word just goes in one ear and out the other. If you've grown up in, in church culture, man, you hear that word like 20 times a week, salvation. But when we talk about salvation, we're talking about being saved from something, correct? And that something is the wrath of God against sin and evil. So the Jews, they rejoiced with gladness 
Because Esther and Mordecai had provided them with salvation from the sin and the evil that was coming against them. And again, when we talk about the Jewish people, this is the people and the line that eventually Christ was going to be born into. But we should see the parallel here in our own lives when we consider that Jesus saved us from the sin and evil of our hearts that led to our destruction. And this is a work of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And yet, all of us are still held responsible for falling short of the glory of God. So here's how I want to end our time. Three things to remember about God's sovereignty, our responsibility, and how they work hand in hand. Now, let me make very clear that our salvation is a work of Christ alone. A work of Christ alone. We don't contribute to that. But our sanctification is what's called a synergistic work. God gives us certain talents and abilities that helps us as he works through us in our growth in Christ. And we see some of this outworking happen even in the book of Esther. So three things to remember about God's sovereignty, our responsibility, and how they work hand in hand. Number one, God's mysterious movements. Because God's movements are mysterious, because they're beyond our comprehension, it means God is moving whether we see it or not. Of all of the different threads that were being woven in this story, there is a greater thread being woven by a God who was controlling the narrative the whole time. And that's what's so great for us to see as we read Esther. Now, did Esther believe that? Did Mordecai believe that? I don't know. Uh, in some ways, it appeared they may have based on what Mordecai said to Esther in chapter 4, verses 13 or 14. Let's read that again. When he said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For you, if you keep silent this time, he said, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So there's this sense where they understood that God was going to accomplish his will, but what was their responsibility in that particular moment? Could they see everything God was doing? No, they, they couldn't. And guess what? Neither can we. And guess what? Uh, nor should we. Think about the God revealed to us in scripture, okay? A God who lives in what the Bible calls unapproachable light, a God who brought all things into existence by the power of his word, a God who is so set apart that if anybody caught a glimpse of him, they would die because they cannot bear the terrible nature of his holiness. How can we be so foolish as to think that a God who knows the numbers of sand that exist in the world and as the number of hairs on our head committed to memory would not also be a God who moves in ways that could only be a mystery to us. You guys feel me on that? This stuff with Esther, it was, it was mysterious too, but that doesn't mean God was ever idle in it. 
And it's no different for you and me. We have no idea about all the ways God is working inside and outside of our life to bring about the good that will bring him the most glory. So like Esther, it's going to include hard seasons. It's going to include confusing circumstances that make no sense to us at all until we finally start realizing that we don't have the capacity to understand the sense and sensibility of God. So maybe we need to stop trying to figure it out and trust him. It's like expecting a newborn child to figure out your taxes before April 15, right? It's insanity. It's impossible. I mean, shoot, I can't even figure out my own taxes before April 15th, right? The point is, being okay with God's mysterious movements is one of the ways we grow in wisdom and spiritual maturity. And it's oddly, it's childlike in appearance, right? Because there's not a child alive right now. I'm just saying this. I'll sign a document. There is not a child alive right now who is worried about their parents' taxes, right? They just trust that mom and dad have things taken care of, that they will be fed and cared for. But come on, Ronnie, life is more complicated than that. Not to God. Not to God. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul's not writing that saying, you know what, you just haven't dove deep enough in, you're going to hit a bottom if you just keep swimming. He's saying there's no way to get to the end of it. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid? So we understand here that God has mysterious movements that don't allow us to just fall back in despair, but like a child, it allows us to go before him and trust him more completely for the things that we can't see and that we're never going to understand. It's relinquishing our grip of control to him is what it is. Two, God has given us brains and abilities. I know some have more than others, right? Brains and abilities. God's sovereignty always works with our responsibility, even though, listen, our responsibility never affects his sovereignty. I don't know. It's not copying out. I don't know how that works. But you see how it played out in the story, right? Esther and Mordecai didn't pace around the palace in passivity. Esther goes to the king. Mordecai writes a new edict. The Jews prepare for battle. Listen, it's, it's not untrusting when we use the brains and abilities God gives us to accomplish what he has set before us. In fact, it's the opposite. In fact, it's the most trusting thing we can do. Why? Well, because knowing our brains and abilities have limits causes us to move forward with the necessary courage, humility, and dependence that keeps our lives in the right order before God. He's given us brains, abilities, talents, and wisdom to apply to situations that he mysteriously moves through to accomplish his will. Here's an example. Early in our marriage, we were renting 
a condo. It's when we start our life together, me and Melissa, in an area we could not, uh, not afford to be in. And uh, we, were, we were given this crazy deal. And, uh, and one day our landlord gave us notice that he was selling the condo after a few years. Uh, again, we, we could not afford the co- to buy the condo. But, but again, here's something that, that God really kind of taught us through this, through this particular season and situation. Uh, we didn't wait until he sold it. You know, my tendency would be to get all panicked or maybe go into paralysis. But we didn't wait until he sold it and kicked us out and we had nowhere to go but the street. That's not what we did. We got busy and we had people help us do this. He'd kick us into gear, but we got busy looking for places we could afford. So I don't know. We don't know what we're doing. We, so we hired a real estate agent. We hired Kelly. No, we didn't know her back then. She wasn't an agent. We hired a real estate agent. We gathered the $4.96 that we had in savings. And within a month, uh, the Lord found us a place an hour away. Um, it meant I had a long commute every day. So it, w- it wasn't ideal. Here's what we didn't know. Okay. We didn't know that this particular house in this less than ideal location led to the church that God used to bring us into ministry and eventually relocate us to Ohio, which eventually led to planning substance, which brings us really making this brief to March 2019 when we are preaching through the book of Esther on this snowy Narnia day, right? Now, again, that doesn't say anything great about us. We were a mess, right? We were scared. We were complaining. We were bogged down by doubt and unbelief and grief. God gave us what little brains we have and micro ability we possess to accomplish his plan through us. So use your brains. They're God-given. Use your abilities. They're God-given. And see how God might use your obedience in those moments to provide for you in ways that you know your brains and abilities will never be able to provide for you alone. This is where this thing called faith comes in because we have limitations, but he doesn't. And our faith has limitations, but he doesn't have any limitations in equipping us with more faith. And he's eager and good to do that. Three, waiting is God's path to wonder. Waiting is God's path to wonder. We can only wonder what was going through the minds of the Jewish people as the day that their defense was, was approaching, right? Would they be strong enough? Would they win the battle but lose a bunch of men in the process? I can imagine thinking, you know, I, I guess I'm happy we get to defend ourselves, but defense also means the potential of death. Will that be me? I'm just telling you what I would be thinking. Will that be my friends? Which of my family will be a casualty in this defense? Why didn't God just eliminate the problem? And why do we even have to fight? Maybe you guys feel that way about things. And why am I being made to put through something that I know God has the power and the the ability to just remove, but he doesn't remove it. He makes us go through it so that he might move something in us. Do you see what God's end game always is every single time? And guess what? Sometimes he does remove things. Sometimes he does remove things. You know what's so crazy? Is I've been battling, this is so minor, but I've been battling this head cold now for like a week and a half. 
And I'm not dying. I'm fully functional. My voice is on the edge of being lost every minute of every day. Grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. But it's like annoying the heck out of me at this point in my life. What's so interesting about it is I've had to have a lot of very deep, serious conversations in the last week. And it's so interesting that every one of these meetings and conversations and Zoom calls and emails, I've come into it feeling so low and so sapped with energy that God has done something to me to soften my heart, to lighten my tone, to back off a little bit and to listen a lot more than I usually would. So, I don't know, he's letting this thing linger for a particular reason. I'd like it to go, but he's doing something in that for purposes that I may figure out down the road, or maybe I don't, or maybe I never figure out. But these are legitimate questions, right? Just like you have legitimate questions when you're faced with something far bigger than this, but that is the potential to be costly in your life. What do you do when those situations arise? Do you, you, you panic, you go into paralysis, or do you wait in hope as people of hope under the care of the God of all hope? Not power of positive thinking, reject that. Not trust your instincts, right? Not thump your chest in overconfidence, but in quiet, prayerful, non-passive hope. Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Because if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Then the psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So then he says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. And my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. There is something greater at work than what our eyes ever allow us to see. There is a greater wonder in our waiting than what our heart sometimes allows us to even comprehend or to feel. Because in the depths of those moments is a God of wonder. So God makes us wait in order to make us better worshipers. That's that end game I'm talking about. God makes you wait in order to make you a better worshiper who becomes increasingly in awe of his wonder. And listen, wonder happens when worry is finally replaced by worship. Because listen, our circumstances can't be what determines our worship. Or ain't none of y'all ever going to worship. Every Sunday when you walk in here, your circumstances are going to be different. But for one hour and 15 minutes, if I'm really on a good roll, right, every week, you wait and you worship as your hearts grow in wonder at the beauty and the sovereignty of God. Did you even know that's what you're doing here? Do you know that's what you're doing here today? Nobody would consider this practical, what we're doing right now. But it's what God has ordained to be most beneficial, right? I mean, at some point, there comes a time in a person's life, kids, hear me here, but don't get there too quickly, 
when they lose some of that childlike wonder that they have of their parents, right? Oh, I'm not talking about respect. That's never supposed to end. I'm saying at some point you will see them as people with a bunch of uncertainties, a bunch of inabilities, a bunch of, man, we didn't know what we were doing either, Ronnie, just like yourself. At some point, you, you probably lose a little of that wonder. But imagine this. Imagine having a father that you could grow in wonder of. And not only grow in wonder of, but never even tap the surface of all that he is, of all that he did by sending Jesus so that your wonder might increase, so that your joy might be full. I mean, imagine all the ways your increasing knowledge of his sovereignty could be the conduit for you to use your abilities with a courageous trust that carried you through all the downtimes, all the fears, the anxieties, and the confusions that you will inevitably face. Imagine having that kind of father who became your father because Jesus tore the curtain of separation that exists between him and your sin on the cross. Because of Christ, we have a father who is not only in control, he's not merely in control, but he also has a boundless love for us that the world and all of its sin and all of its evil cannot separate us from. This is the good news. Let's pray. God, thank you for this reminder, Lord, that you are over all things, very graciously over all things, sovereignly over all things. And Lord, at the same time, you've called us, Lord, as your people who you've given brains and abilities to, to walk in wonder and in awe of you so that our worship of you might increase. Lord, I pray that as we consider and we, we contemplate, as we go home today, the mystery of these things, how is it that you're over all things and no matter what happens, your will is accomplished, but yet we, we know we're responsible for our sin. We know we're not responsible for our salvation, but we know that we, we, we work hand in hand with you in terms of our sanctification, in terms of allowing us, Lord, to accomplish your will through the different talents and gifts you've given us. So Lord, increase our desire and in our courage, Lord, to follow you in such a way that trusts you, but also steps out in some very distinct ways like we see the Jewish people stepping out in the book of Esther that takes responsibility, Lord, for the things that you've given us. Lord, we, we're not very brave people. We have a hard time trusting in anybody but ourselves. And we are so easily thwarted. We're so easily brought down. So God, I know that we need strength and even things like a night of snow in the middle of a, a month where we're not supposed to have it. I know that even me, when I woke up today, I went, oh man. And I know that we are so easily, we are so easily, um, we so easily become downcast. So God, I pray for that strength today for those who are dealing with greater things than snowfall. 
And God, that they would imagine you as the Father that is not simply above all things, um, but is with them through all things. And that's the most important thing for us to remember, that you're a good God and a good Father. And Lord, we want to have that awe and that wonder of you. We know that satisfaction comes um, as we learn to worship you more fully and completely. So Lord, give us that slowly as a church family that wants to embody um, this hope of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.